Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Griffin Strom a few days after watching Ohio State play its first game of the 2022 football season in which the Buckeyes earned a 21-10 win over Notre Dame. Not the scores that we predicted. We were both expecting more points from both teams, as I think most people were. But ultimately, Ohio State coming out of Ohio Stadium with a season-opening win over a team that was ranked in the top five. Griffin, we've had a few days to reflect on the game, to re-watch the game. What is the biggest thing that stands out in your mind from being in a shoe on Saturday? Dan, I think it's got to be how Jim Knowles' defense you know, showed out in his debut with the Scarlet and Gray. Obviously, I think the, the main thing, my main takeaway was that in the second half, you know, Ohio State comes down, comes out down after halftime, but Jim Knowles' defense does not allow a single point for the Fighting Irish. Zero points, 72 yards total for, for Notre Dame in the second half, 12 yards in the fourth quarter where Ohio State really ate up that clock on offense. And, you know, the, the, the defense, oh, 10 points total in, in the game there for Notre Dame. And, and when Ryan Day was asked, you know, what was he most impressed with after the game, he said 10 points. That was the first thing he said. So, you know, that is my main takeaway and I don't think his debut could have gone a whole lot. What about you, Dan? What, what are you you know, still really thinking about as we're just a couple days out from the season opener? Well, you know I'm going to say Xavier Johnson, right? I mean, I, I got to give love to the former walk-on having the moment of the game, really, scoring the game-winning touchdown, which turned out to be the game-winning touchdown as he put Ohio State ahead late in the third quarter. And then on the very next play, runs down the field and makes a tackle at the 15-yard line, you know, on kickoff coverage, you know, I, I, it's well known I have a soft spot for for walk-ons and seeing them make plays, so that was really cool to me, seeing Xavier Johnson make those plays and, you know, really prove why Ohio State has been talking so highly of him all off-season because you never know. I mean, even though I do have that soft spot for walk-ons, at the same time, it's like when you hear those guys get talked up in the off-season, a lot of times it never really leads to anything once the actual season starts. But, I mean, you saw it too, Griffin. I mean, when we were at practices, like every time we were at a practice, that guy was making plays. So we could see it with our own eyes. But, hey, Xavier Johnson, even in this room full of top 100 recruits, he was a guy who really was making a legitimate push for playing time in that receiver rotation. And then to have the first game of a year unfold the way it did, he may not have gotten that opportunity if Jackson Smith and Jigba didn't get hurt. But for Xavier Johnson to be the guy who ultimately stepped up and put Ohio State over the hump in a game where its offense was struggling, that that was really cool, really a validation of everything that's been said about him. And you know, he's a guy, he's in the receiver rotation now. Like, now. like you, you think about all the highly recruited players on this team, but I mean, Xavier Johnson is is a legit factor on this team now. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's probably a, a top 40 player on the team now at minimum. I and mean, he's put himself in that position uh, by, you know, not just proving that he can play at wide receiver, but he also played the most sm- special team snaps of any player against Notre Dame. So I thought that was really cool to see Xavier Johnson, a guy who's worked so hard behind the scenes, a guy who didn't even want to tell the world that he got a scholarship last year because he didn't want to distract from the team. For him to finally get his moment and, and be rewarded for it, I thought that was really cool. 
Yeah, Dan, I wrote that piece about like X factors for the team this year. And I, and I was considering putting, you know, Xavier Johnson on the, on that list because w- like you said, we'd seen him in practice making plays. We've heard all the right things about him in terms of, listen, he's a guy, he's in the, the, the two deep at wide receiver. He's in that top six unit there with, with Cam Babb still being injured in the preseason, everything like that. And I, I don't think I actually put him on the list, but now he ends up being actually the X factor, you know, appropriately the named X as factor. well. Exactly. Uh, appropriately named. The X factor in the the very first game of the season against the you know one of the best teams on Ohio State's regular season schedule. So and then all the talk about the the depth that Ohio State has a wide receiver and for in the very first game you know Julian Fleming to to not play with an injury Jackson Smith and Jigba going down early with that you know a hamstring injury we've heard now for for, for Xavier Johnson to step up there and you know have that that moment it was certainly very cool to see. X was the X factor and Jack Sawyer was the Jack. So we got some nice name synergy there working not only with Xavier Johnson on offense, but also Jack Sawyer playing that hybrid defensive end linebacker role that we saw him play on defense. And let's get back to the defense because Ryan Day said it, the defense was the story of the night and he's absolutely right. I mean, how much have we talked about the defensive struggles over the last couple of seasons? And I mean, let's be honest, both of us were expecting some growing pains and we actually did see them for one play (laughs) on the very first play of a game. Notre Dame hits a 54 yard catch and run and you're thinking, oh gosh, here we go again. And then from that point forward, I mean, really other than one drive that they allowed Notre Dame to put together a long touchdown drive. Ohio State was dominant on defense and held Notre Dame to 250 total yards, two and a half yards per carry on the ground. I mean, Notre Dame came into this game saying we want to establish the run and Ohio State did not allow them to do that. And so I think you talk about Jim Knowles' debut. It, It could not have gone much better than it did. And certainly it's only one game, but so far... He certainly looks like he's worth that $1.9 million if they're paying him. Yeah, Dan, I mean, Ryan Day pretty much like recited the lead to my my post-game feature I wrote about the defense, you know, to in Tuesday's press conference saying after that first play, everyone was thinking, here we go again. And that's exactly what I wrote in my piece because it was like we've heard all all offseason, all preseason about the, the confidence and the, the new Jim Knowles scheme, how much better this defense is going to be. And then one play in, you're like, okay, maybe maybe things haven't changed too much after all in terms of results. But of course, that that was kind of spurred on by that missed tackle there by Josh Proctor. Ends up being a 50-something yard play. There was the, the personal foul on JT as well. But then after that, the defense tightens up, you know, only gives up, hold, holds to a field goal there. I think that was very important for that group to say, okay, we're not going to break after giving up this one big play. You know, Jim Knowles also saying after the, after the game, one of his kind of philosophies is that we only get allow five you know explosive plays big plays you know in a game and that was one of them but that was that was one of very few because only 10 points like you said and and Marcus Freeman came in saying you know we're going to run the ball because first of all they had a first time starter at quarterback we wondered how much that would be a factor in the game as well they did try to run the ball but they did not have very much success you know Ohio State holding Notre Dame to 2.5 yards per carry for the game and, you know, we, we talked about it a lot, the, the, all the hype the defensive line was getting for Ohio State. You know, guys like Ronnie Hickman saying, like, you know, running backs just aren't getting, to get, aren't getting to us, aren't getting to the defensive backfield because the defensive line is doing such a good job up front. And I think that was one of the big storylines coming out of this one as well, Dan, as we start to talk about some, some standout performers from that game. Mike Hall, you know, starting a defensive tackle, really having a coming out party. It was kind of funny because, of course, a few weeks ago, Kevin Wilson said, you know, Mike Hall being a, a three, 
you know, that's that's the best three I've ever seen. And, and you know, he, he he's not a three after all, Dan. Mike Hall, four total tackles, a couple tackles for loss, a sack in there as well, really disrupted what Notre Dame wanted to do on offense. And he was awarded Ohio State's Defensive Player of the Game, you know, award. And I think it was it was well-deserved for him, for sure. Yeah, Mike Hall ain't no free. Mike Hall, I mean, I think he proved that, I mean, he's a starting defensive tackle on this team. I mean, I, I wasn't expecting that coming in. I thought Jerron Cage would probably end up getting the start at nose tackle, but they ended up giving it to Mike Hall. Him and Teron Vincent ended up playing both a majority of the snaps. And I'd be surprised if Mike Hall doesn't continue to play a majority of the snaps, at least if he continues to play like that, because... You know, we, we talked we talked a couple weeks ago about who's the alpha dog on Larry Johnson's defensive line. And at least from first impressions, it looks like maybe Mike Hall is that alpha dog. Yeah, I can certainly see it. I mean, you know, that's what Larry Johnson, when he was asked about the, the Kevin Wilson comments, he was like, listen, Mike Hall might have been a three at some point, but he has quickly, you know, ascended the ranks here for that defensive line. And yeah, I'll, I'll think about how much we talked about Tyleek Williams coming on in his second year in that same class with Mike Hall based on the productivity he had last year as a freshman who had to shed a lot of weight over the offseason. He was a guy that that was seemed to be pretty hot coming into the season, but but Mike Hall, I think, has stolen some of that shine and, and certainly some of the reps as well. And we'll get into a little bit of the, the rotations and things like that in a minute. But Dan, you talk about some other defensive standouts from the game. How about Tommy Eichenberg? Another guy we heard about all offseason coming off of that monster 17-tackle Rose Bowl record-setting performance and, and kind of wondering, like, is he going to be able to sustain that that level of play for the Buckeyes at that linebacker position? And I think the answer right now, at least one game into the season, is certainly yes, because I think, you know, us at 11 Warriors awarded him our Defensive Player of the Game award. He ends up with a nine total tackles to lead the team, two sacks and three tackles for loss. So he now has 26, 26 tackles in the last two games, and he's certainly on some type of roll going back to last season. And he just seems to be, you know, in, in the in the backfield all the time for this Ohio State defense. Yeah, I thought you were a little bold when you said the other week that you thought Tommy Eichenberg was going to be Ohio State's defensive MVP this season. But that's exactly what he looked like in the first game. Played every snap at middle linebacker. And I mean, he was just, I mean, he's playing fast out there. Like he was, you if you go back and you watch Tommy for, at this point a year ago, and, and you watch him in that game on Saturday, I think you'd see a huge difference in just the speed he's playing with, the instinctiveness he's playing with. And I think you saw that across the entire defense. I mean, I think one of the biggest things that stood out to me, especially when I was re-watching the game, is you could just see this defense is playing with a different level of confidence this year. Like, you can just see the, the guys, they're playing faster. They, they, they have more belief in what they're doing. And it, it really showed up on the field, I think, in that first game. And I think... Uh, of all players, I think that probably was most resonant in, in Tommy Eichenberg and the way that he played because he he just was flying to the football. He he really looked great out there. I think another guy who who's right in that same category is Lathan Ransom. And I mean, Lathan Ransom, it, it, you know, it's you actually called it out correctly in our last call that we do on Saturday mornings. You had him as your player to watch, and we really didn't know what Lathan Ransom's role would be going into the game and. Then, you know, we talked about that first play of a game. You know, really, Josh Proctor made a mistake on that play. You know, he tried to break in front of a pass from Tyler Buckner. He whiffs, Styles catches it, and that allows him to go for a 54-yard gain. Ohio State decides to pull Proctor after that series, and Ransom played so well that he never came out of the game again. And so Ransom didn't begin the season with a starter, but it feels to me like 
Ransom probably seized the starting job away from Josh Proctor very quickly, and we'll see how that develops over the course of a season. But another guy, you know, we like all three of these guys are examples of guys that we heard a lot about this preseason, and you never know when you hear all the hype into preseason, you know, sometimes guys get hyped up into preseason and it, it doesn't end up really manifesting when the actual season starts. But these are free guys, you know, Mike Hall or lots of positive talk about him all off season, Tommy Eichenberg. I mean, everybody was raving about him and we saw why on Saturday and then Leif and Ransom. I mean, Jim Knowles was clearly very impressed with Leif and Ransom, the way he talked about him in August. And we saw why on Saturday, because you know he's, he's a guy that like last year, you know, he was playing some slot corner. They moved him around at times. He just didn't ever seem that comfortable in what Ohio State was doing with him defensively last year. Now it feels like they figured out how to use Leif and Ransom, and he's out there flying around, and we're really we're able to see on Saturday the kind of player that Leif and Ransom can be. Yeah, it's really interesting because Jim Knowles said about Josh Proctor a few weeks ago, you know, in the preseason that he could be the best in the country. And, you know, he did start out the game as a starter for Ohio State. But Lathan Ransom just came on so strong. I mean, I think I've said it on here before. Ronnie Hickman said that Lathan Ransom had one of the best camps he's seen, you know, during his Ohio State career. And he certainly showed that. But, you know, Knowles, Ryan Day and Perry Eliano have all said since the game, you know, asked about Josh Proctor and that situation with him and Ransom. And they've all said, listen, jo- we still expect Josh Proctor to play a big role for this defense, you know, kind of insinuating that he's not going to be totally benched for the rest of the season, you know, just for that one missed tackle, despite the fact that we, we did see in that in that first game that, you know, Jim Knowles does like to stick with his guys, his main starting guys on that back end. When you talk about guys like Tommy Eichenberg, Ronnie Hickman playing, you know, almost every snap for the defense, Lathan Ransom getting most of those snaps as well at that that bandit spot. So so that was kind of the, the proof in the pudding there in terms of stuff he was trying to talk about. But I do think, obviously, as Ohio State plays some of these lesser opponents here in the next few weeks, we'll see other guys get the, get their shot. We'll, we'll, we'll have a chance to see Josh Proctor on the field and see if other guys can kind of challenge for, for more playing time at some of those positions. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with Josh Proctor is it, it's kind of been the story of his career. Like, we it's been evident throughout Josh Proctor's career that he has the talent to be one of the best safeties in the country. Like he flashes that big play ability, but he's also had that inconsistency. I mean, I just think back to the 2019 Clemson game where he whiffs on Trevor Lawrence in the open field. And, you know, he has that big run and and the game starts to get away from Ohio state. I think that's kind of been the story of his career of it. Like you can see the potential there for Josh Proctor to be an elite player but he just hasn't ever quite put it all together. And injuries have been a big part of that. They certainly were last year. But, you know, I think, you know, that that's a situation there of Ohio State saying, you know, we got to we gotta go for the guy we trust here. And, and ultimately, Leif and Ransom was the guy they ended up trusting more after that first series. So like you said, I, I think there's going to still be plenty of opportunities for Josh Proctor. But, you know, I think the other thing it, it, it tells you with, with Jim Knowles and his coaching staff is it, they're not going to be afraid if they have to make a decision. If, if they think they don't have the right guy in there and they have to make a decision, I think that was an early example of they're not going to be afraid to make a change. They're, they're going to put the guy out there that they think is the best player on the field. And I think in, in those big games, they're going to play the best players. Like I, I think, you know, I, like you said, the next couple weeks, I think we'll see a lot more rotation because they're playing Arkansas State and Toledo. So those are the games where you need to get more guys reps. But I think in those big games, those close games, we're, we're going to see 
them them stick with the core guys. You know, like Ryan Day said on Tuesday, they only played 49 defensive plays in that game. So there's going to be games where just by the nature of a the game, they play more defensive plays. They might need to rotate a little more just to keep guys fresh. But, you know, we, we saw Jim Knowles stay true to what he had said it, going into the season with we don't really want to rotate a lot at either linebacker or in the back seven. They really didn't. I mean, really, the only real rotation we saw in the back seven was Steel Chambers rotating with Cody Simon. And I, and I would have to say, when I was re-watching the game, one of the biggest things that stood out to me was Steel Chambers was just playing f- faster than Cody Simon. I mean, he, he just was. It's not to say Cody Simon's a bad player, but I would think just based on what I saw in that game that, you know, you go forward to the Wisconsin game and you, you want to have your best players on the field. Just based on what we saw against Notre Dame, I would think that Steel Chambers should be the guy playing the majority of snaps alongside Tommy Eichenberg going forward. And as we talk about, you know, the, the rotation at, at safety and linebacker and things like that, I think a lot of people were starting to talk themselves into this being, oh, is this a game where, where Court Williams could play a lot because of obviously the matchup with star Notre Dame tight end Michael Mayer and everything like that with Court Williams having that that hybrid body type as a, a safety slash linebacker. Dan, I'm glad we didn't get too crazy on, with that matchup. Although I did use a picture of him in one of my pieces there going into the game about key matchups. But but he didn't play any defensive snaps in the game, Dan. I'm pretty sure it was only on special teams. We saw Court Williams, you know, captain for this Buckeye team. Seemingly a matchup where he would would do well, but he he was not needed for the Buckeyes to have the defensive performance they had. And then, you know, other other surprises defensively, rotationally. You know, I, I thought the the defensive tackle snaps would be a little more even maybe, you know, Jerron Cage only playing 11 snaps, I believe. Tyleek Williams, I already mentioned, he only played 15 snaps as, as some of those other guys, Teron Vincent and, and Mike Hall, namely, got the majority of those. We also saw at a defensive end as well, a Sawyer and JT getting the most snaps at a defensive end. I think we, we thought that was going to be the case, but now we've kind of seen, okay, Zach Harrison and uh, JJB getting, getting fewer snaps there than those guys as they surge here in their second season. But Dan, Anything else about the defensive rotations really stand out to you or surprise you in the season opener? No, I think you pretty much covered it. I mean, yeah, I, I was, I mean, I put in our round table last week that I thought Court Williams was a guy who could potentially play a key role in covering Michael Mayer. So I, I whiffed on that one because they didn't end up using Court Williams at all. And again, I think, you know, he's one of those guys, but I'm still interested to see. You know, I didn't get called on during the Perry Eliano press conference on Tuesday. I wanted to ask him about Court Williams because I, I do think that he's a guy who could, you know, potentially play a bigger role against certain opponents. You know, or that's, you know, teams like Wisconsin and Iowa that, you know, maybe, you know, run the ball more heavily. I, I do think there's going to be a role for him at some point. It did not come to fruition against Notre Dame, which surprised me a little bit. But I, I still think that there could be a role for Court Williams going forward end the season. And that kind of plays into the question we were asked by Bull 1214, which said, you know, did anyone play more or less because of Notre Dame's scheme? And do you see any changes for Arkansas State? I mean, in terms of Arkansas State, I think, I mean, if if Jim Knowles was trying to keep things vanilla against Notre Dame, then he's really going to try to keep things vanilla against Arkansas State. And so I don't think we're going to see anything crazy against Arkansas State. I just think we're going to see more rotation because of the fact that it's Arkansas State. I mean, if if that game goes the way that it should go, then they're going to want to get a ton of guys reps over the course of a game. And so I think we'll see more rotation 
you know, against Arkansas State just because it's Arkansas State. But I, I think the first part of a question is interesting in the sense of, you know, let's say they play when they play Michigan State. You know, it's more of a spread type team. Do we do we see things look different against Michigan State in terms of who's playing the most snaps? I think we could. I mean, do we see things look different against Wisconsin? I think we could. I, I think, you know, I think you know, what Jim Knowles insinuated after the game is, you know, we've still got a lot more in our back pocket. And so I think, you know, just because we didn't see a free linebacker package against Notre Dame doesn't mean we're not going to see it later in the season. I I think there's going to be more wrinkles that we are going to see as the season progresses. And I do think playing time is going to vary for some players based on, I mean, I think, you know, I think Tommy Eichenberg, the way he played, if he keeps playing like that, he's probably going to be out there pretty much every play every week in close games. You know, I think Denzel Burke and, and Ronnie Hickman, those guys are probably going to be out there pretty much every play every week in, in, in competitive games. But I do think for other players, some things, you know, again, that could be like a Leif and Ransom Josh Proctor situation where I, I think there could be some some players, some positions where things may end up being a little bit more matchup dependent. Yeah, and Dan, I, I think the question is now after seeing the Jim Knowles defense on the field for Ohio State for the first time, you know how how much are we buying into the stock? Are we sold now on the Ohio State defense and how good it can be, or are there reasons to to still kind of caution it just because we don't actually know how good this Notre Dame offense is going to end up being? And we talked about this coming into the game. Looking back at the end of the year, we're going to say, "Wow, that that Notre Dame offense really wasn't all that good to begin with." And you know the the, the limited s- snaps on defense too that Ohio State had in, in the second half does. Would that have you know allowed the Notre Dame offense to have more success if, if Ohio State's offense didn't control the ball as much? Things of that nature. So you know, do you think there will be a lot bigger tests to come for this defense, or, or do you think that Ohio State's defense showed you enough to to really be bought in to how good it can be moving forward? I mean, first of all, let's just say this. I mean, you got to give the defense an A A plus for this first game. I mean, to to, to hold Notre Dame to ten points, a top five team to ten points, again fantastic performance. I I definitely come out of that game feeling less skeptical about all the talk about a top five, top 10 defense than I did going in. I I, I absolutely feel less skeptical about that. Like you watch that game and I'm like, okay, now I can see where they're coming from. But I do think there are going to be bigger tests to come. I mean, I I, I think, again, we'll, we'll see as the season progresses, but I don't think that was an elite offense that they were going up against in Notre Dame. So, you know, I look at teams like, you know, certainly Michigan at the end of a season, but, you know, sooner potentially teams like, you know, Michigan State, you know, I mean, you got teams like, you know, Maryland later in the season, you know, it's it's early in the season. So it's still kind of hard to get a gauge on like who the bigger tests are going to be. But I do think that they're going to play teams that are better offensively. And I mean, certainly if you think ahead, you know, way ahead to the end of a year and potential, you know, college football playoff ramifications. Not that I think we should be going there yet, but just in in terms of, you know, what could lie ahead, they are going to play better offenses. And so, you know, I, I, I don't think we should necessarily assume that they're going to be that dominant every week. I think you know, that's part of why, why Jim Knowles is saying, you know, we kept it basic last week. We've got more in our pocket. I think there's, there's going to be bigger tests to come, but I, I don't think you could have asked for a better start. 
Yeah, and, and Berger1124 asked us specifically, you know, about the, the past defense for Ohio State. And, you know, I certainly think if this Ohio State team, you know, really dominates the line of scrimmage up front and shuts down teams running attacks, I think teams are going to try to, you know, test the pass defense more and try to throw the ball a lot more than Notre Dame did. What did they end up having in terms of only 18 pass attempts in the game for Notre Dame? I mean, that's that's not a lot of, of, of testing, you know, a defense downfield. Listen, Arkansas State can throw the ball. They had the number 11 passing attack in the country last year, although I, you know, I don't necessarily think we're going to see a, a passing offense that looks like one of the best in the country against this Ohio State team, just in terms of, you know, scheme and talent and things like that. But I certainly think there are teams that are going to test that aspect of the Ohio State defense if we continue to see the defensive line be as much of a strength as it has been, you know, in the season opener than obviously in the preseason, as we heard about. Yeah, I mean, I would I, I look at Michigan State right now. That's the team that I look at right now in terms of, you know, what's going to be a first real test for the pass pass defense because you know, they've got a really good receiver in Jaden Reed, and they've got a pretty good quarterback in and Peyton Forn. You know, I, I don't know, you know, these these first you know, five games, I don't know if there's really a team that I look at and go, that's going to really be a big test for the pass defense. I mean, I think probably for the season as a whole, regular season as a whole, probably the two biggest tests for the pass defense are probably going to be the final two games of the regular season, those being Maryland and Michigan, because I think those are probably the teams that are going to have the two best passing offenses in the big, big 10 outside of Ohio State. But I think in terms of, you know, first half of a season, I look at Michigan State as that that probably being, and that's not till the sixth game, but I look at that being probably the biggest test of a pass defense that we're going to see in the first half of a season. And, and Danny, we talked about uh, Xavier Johnson already in terms of a guy who you know really stepped up for Ohio State in, in terms of a guy that we weren't necessarily thinking was going to have some some huge important role in the season opener. But I think another guy who who falls in that same category although we, we expected more out of him in the season opener than Dan and Xavier Johnson, for example, was Mayan Williams because, you know, he had only one fewer carry on the game than Travion Henderson got. You know, I think a lot of people were expecting Henderson to get the lion's share of snaps there at running back. But Mayan Williams ended up being the guy on, on perhaps the most important drive of the game for Ohio State, which was, of course, in the fourth quarter. It took seven minutes off the clock with a 14-play, 95-yard drive, which I really think kind of personified and, and characterized everything Ryan Day talked about afterwards in terms of winning ugly, being able to win the game, running the ball, you know, controlling the clock, not having to, you know, have these this quick strike offense where you have to have a, a huge play in the pass passing game. It was really a, a grinded out series for Ohio State, and I I want to say Mayan Williams had like 47 or 49 yards himself running the ball on that drive. I think when I was adding it up earlier, and he ends up punching in. The, the touchdown there to put Ohio State up two scores with like something like four minutes left on the clock at the end of the game. He ends up with 84 yards on 14 carries. Obviously that touchdown, he had another 12-yard reception. So a very, very solid game from him running over some guys. I mean, we've seen that from him in the past, but but certainly earning some more fanfare, I think, as well from, you know, Buckeye Nation there when, when they saw what he was able to do with that. And, you know, how, how much do you think that could buoy him moving forward, Dan, in terms of a, of a role for this team as Henderson's understudy. Yeah, I mean, I've always been in favor of the idea that Mayan should have a significant role in, in the running back rotation, and I think we saw why on Saturday. I mean, that I mean that drive was really impressive by Mayan. I mean, he just really, he just kind of took over on that drive. I mean, including the spectacular catch he had on the sideline, and then just 
with his hard running style. And I think, you know, I think that's a thing is I think, you know, with him and Travion Henderson, they have two different running styles. And I think if you are using both of them heavily, it forces defenses to prepare for two different styles of runners. And so I think, I think Ohio State should continue to use both of them regularly. And if that was another question Burger1124 asked about, you know, is Williams creating this, creating an opportunity for this to be a true 1A and 1B type running back duo? And I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's possible. I mean, I still think Travion's probably going to be the guy who sees the majority of carries, but I mean, I, I think what Mayan adds, I think, you know, his running ability, I mean, Mayan Williams would be the starting running back for the vast majority of teams in college football. Like he's a really good running back. I mean, you just look at last year, his yards per carry that he had. I mean, he's, he's a really good running back. And so I think using both of those guys regularly serves two purposes. For one, it gives defenses two different kind of running backs to prepare for. And I think that makes Ohio state's running attack more dangerous. And two, it helps keep Travion fresh because we saw last year Travion got kind of banged up over the course of a year, maybe slowed down a little bit down the stretch of a season. I think by you know giving both of those guys a healthy share of the carries, it's ultimately going to keep both of them fresher and it's ultimately going to increase both of their chances to you know really perform well all season long, which is important because as we've talked about with Evan Pryor being injured, there's really no proven depth behind them. Yeah, and, and we talk about the the offense kind of struggling a little bit because that's you know an, another huge takeaway from this game for Ohio State is that of course they finished finished the first half with only seven points. I think that was a huge disappointment to a lot of people because you know I, I don't think anyone was thinking the Ohio State offense would look bad in this game, even if Ohio State was going to lose. And you look at the final kind of rushing numbers here: 172 rushing yards for Ohio State, 4.9 yards per carry. You know I don't think that's that's you know bad in in a game against a team like Notre Dame where that's kind of the style of play and they have a great defensive line and everything like that. But, you know, Henderson and and Williams, neither player had a a longer run than 16 yards in that game. So you never really saw that that one huge play that you usually might get out of Trivion Henderson that we've become accustomed to seeing. But, Dan, I also wonder how much of the offensive struggles we saw from Ohio State has to do with the fact that Jackson Smith and Jigba, you know, had that aforementioned injury in the first quarter at first, we thought it was, you know, possibly a concussion protocol type of deal because, and he just got drilled in the head on the sideline by Brandon Joseph for Notre Dame, and he came out of the game right away. We didn't see him for a couple drives there, but then, you know, he, he's working out on the sideline on the, the exercise bike, everything like that. So that kind of indicated, you know, maybe it was it was something else. He's jogging on the sideline. Then we find out, you know, from the broadcast, Holly Rowe on the broadcast saying that it's actually a ham or a, a left leg injury, a hamstring injury potentially. And he, he ends up coming back into the game, Dan, for a little bit. But if you were watching him, he wasn't getting off the line very quickly. And he looked like he was still a little bit hobbled. We did not see him again in the second half. Ohio State has said subsequently that it's not necessarily a long-term issue. But I think now that you're looking at the schedule for Ohio State and you have Arkansas State and Toledo coming up, you're kind of wondering if you're a fan, and I'm sure the coaching staff as well, you're thinking, you know, why would we risk putting him in there to potentially tweak that injury again if those are games that were coming into favored by 44 points. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think it would be smart for him to play before a Wisconsin game. Because, I mean, how many times have you seen it in football, just, you know, in the past, where a guy suffers a hamstring injury and he comes back too soon and then he aggravates it and then he's hampered for the whole season? I think that's what Ohio State needs to be careful of here is, you know, I mean, 
Jackson's a competitor. You know, Jackson has his sights set on, you know, breaking his own records. I'm sure he wants to get out there as quickly as possible. But I think particularly those next two games, I mean, you don't, I mean, let's just be real here. They don't need him to beat Arkansas State. They don't need him to beat Toledo. They might need him to beat Wisconsin. And so to me, I, I don't think Jackson Smith and Jigba, if there's, I mean, if he's anything less than 100%, which my feeling would be with a hamstring injury, I'm not a doctor. So if the medical staff says he's 100% good to go, then Ryan Day should trust that and he should play. But if he's anything less than 100% healthy, to me, rest him the next two weeks, make sure he's healthy for the start of Big Ten play. Same goes for Luke Whipler, who we found out, you know, had a walking boot on his foot after the game. You know, not sure if that's anything that's really going to cause him to miss any time. But again, if he's anything less than 100%, if, if it was me, I would not play him because you're going to need these guys once you start Big Ten play. You don't, you really shouldn't need them the next two weeks. And so to me, you know, give the, give the younger guys some reps, get them some experience, let those guys rest and get healthy. But, you know, to the point of, you know, how much of the offensive struggles were a result of Jackson Smith and Jig being out, I mean, I think it's absolutely a significant reason why. And, I mean, obviously, you know, again, you got to remember the fact, too, that, you know, they don't have Chris Olave or Garrett Wilson anymore. So, you know, you had three superstar receivers on that team last year. And for the majority of that game on Saturday night, none of those three guys were out there. And so I think it was certainly a, you know, a reminder or an indicator, whatever you want to call it, of how valuable Jackson Smith and Jigba is to that offense. Because I think you know, it, it's so easy to look at the talent, you know, see guys like Omeka, Buka, and Marvin Harrison Jr. and everyone else in that receiver room and to say, oh, they're just so loaded that, you know, they're going to be fine even if one guy goes down. But Jackson Smith and Jig was a special, special player. Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson were special, special players too. And yeah, you know, we saw Marvin Harrison Jr. have a great game in the Rose Bowl. We, you know, Omeka, Buka, we've certainly seen a lot of flashes of his ability, including on Saturday night. But those guys aren't Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson yet. They, they, they're still, they, they can be that good, but they're not there yet. They're still working their way up to that point. And so I think to lose a guy like Jackson Smith and Jigba, a guy who I'm sure was a very focal part of the game plan they put together, to lose him that early in the game, I think that absolutely had an impact on the fact that they only scored 21 points. Now, they have to be able to adjust to that. I mean, that's something that they have to be able to adjust to if something like that happens. They have too much talent not to be able to adjust to at least some extent. And, you know, I think that's another reason why, you know, if he can't play the next couple of weeks, that may be a small blessing in disguise just in the sense of you get the other guys more reps. You're forced to kind of game plan without Jackson Smith and Jigba. And, you know, you're kind of able to work through you know, those contingency plans of, you know, what if you don't have Jackson Smith and Jigba out there? And so I think they have to be able to adjust to it if he's not out there, and I think they can. But at the same time, I think it shows just how valuable Jackson Smith and Jigba is, and that's all the more reason to make sure you let him get healthy for the next couple of weeks. And then the chemistry with the, the new receivers is a very real thing. I mean, I think people think, you know, like you said, you just trot out these, these five-star guys and, and things like that and everything will be all right. And it very well may be, but I think one, one stat that kind of speaks to the feeling out process a little bit 
you know, of the 11 targets to Marvin Harrison Jr., who who we all pretty much picked to be the, the second most productive receiver for the Buckeyes besides Jackson Smith and Jigba this season, only five catches there. So that's, you know, six, six of Stroud's 10 incompletions on the game looking for Harrison. They just couldn't quite connect on a couple of those plays. A couple of them were just in inches away. I think there was two different ones that could have been touchdowns. One would have been a, a great catch by Harrison in the end zone. Another one was maybe a, a hair too far. They just couldn't seem to quite connect on some of those big plays there. But again, I think that speaks to the fact also of, you know, CJ Stroud saying that that season openers are, are weird. You know, remember the, the, the season opener last year with Minnesota, it took a, a while for him to get kind of his thing going there as well. So, you know, there were, there were offensive struggles in that game. And I think at halftime, I was kind of concerned looking at Ohio, the Ohio State offense thinking, man, are they going to wake up here in the second half or is Ohio State going to lose kind of an underwhelming game here. They did wake up enough, but I, I certainly think, you know, going forward in the next few games, certainly big chances for Hausey to get some real r- rhythm, especially in the passing game against some lesser opponents. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a big difference between practice and a game, right? Like, you can go out there, you can throw every day in the offseason and try to get that rhythm with those guys, but there's still a difference between doing that on your own or doing that in a practice setting and doing it in an actual game. And so I, I think that that timing with, you know, CJ Stroud and those less experienced receivers, that's going to get better over time. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons to be optimistic that the offense is going to get better That You know, the, the issues we saw in week one aren't necessarily going to be something that's, that's going to linger all season long. You know, I think also the fact that, I mean, Notre Dame is, go- again, just like with the offense, we don't really know yet because it's only one week, but my feeling is Notre Dame is going to be one of the best defenses Ohio State will face all season. I think Wisconsin's up there, so that's another test later this month. I think Iowa's up there, although Iowa's offense certainly doesn't look too scary, but at least in terms of defense, you think you know, those are probably the two teams you circle as the best defenses Ohio State is going to face for the rest of the way, we think. But I think Notre Dame is probably one of the best defenses Ohio State will face all year. And so, you know, I, I you know, if I was going to predict right now, I would predict that 21 points will be the fewest points Ohio State will score all season. But I, I also think it, it was a good reminder and kind of a good reality check for everybody because – you know, we go into you go into the season every year and it's like this team's going to be unstoppable. Like they have so much talent. Nobody's going to be able to match up with them. And I think you got that reality check right away that like, yeah, they're really talented, but they're not unstoppable. Like they're still, you know, not it's not always going to come easy, especially when they're playing good defenses. You know, it might look easy this week against Arkansas State, but <laughs> against better defenses, everything's not always going to come easy. It's not it's not going to be you know, just, just carve up every defense and score touchdowns at will just because they have all this talent. So they, they're still going to, they're still going to face challenges along the way. And I, I think that was a reality check for that first game. I think the thing that's so encouraging though, is that they were able to rely on their defense and win a game because those are the kind of games Ohio State didn't win last year. Those are the kind of games that with the defense they had last year, Ohio State probably loses that game because Ohio State needed its offense to put up big numbers to outscore the other team last year. Whereas on Saturday, I mean, their offense really struggled for three quarters, but the defense kept them in it. And that's the thing that's encouraging is that now you feel like this is a team that 
can win in multiple ways. They don't have to outrun the other team in a track meet. They, they can win that kind of tough game too. And that doesn't mean they should rely on that. I mean, if the offense scores 21 points a game, then Ohio State is going to lose multiple games. I mean, the offense is going to have to be better than that. But the fact that the defense was able to win them a game against a really good opponent in the first game of a year, I think that's why you could tell Ryan Day feels really good about what he saw on Saturday because even though it wasn't a great day for his offense, Ohio State still found a way to win what should be one of its most challenging games of a regular season. And obviously all the offensive success is a calling card of Ryan Day's program at Ohio State since he took over, obviously, in 2019. But it seems like, Dan, every time there's a a close game or maybe a game where Ohio State doesn't have its best offensive performance, there starts to be a little bit of, you know, murmurings from, from some fans being like, should, should Ryan Day stop calling plays? You know, does Ryan Day, does he not have the, the touch anymore in the play calling? And that kind of dovetails into a question we got from Grand Theft Harley, who said, by percentages, how much of the offensive play calling is done by Day and how much by Kevin Wilson, obviously the co-offensive coordinator for Ohio State? Currently, it looks like the schemes have Day's stamp all over it. Has Day become too pass happy? And you think about it, you know, in a game where, where Ryan Day talks so much about winning the game by running the ball, C.J. Stroud still ends up throwing the ball 34 times in that game. And there was a point in the game where, you know, Henderson had a very, you know, sparse amount of carries. And I had people messaging me being like, why aren't they giving the ball to Travion Henderson? Obviously, I think they kind of righted the ship in, in terms of the, the pass happy complaint there with that, that very long drive that was very run dominant. But Dan, what's your kind of take on that? And how much of an overreaction is it from fans that are that are saying that Ryan Day should not be calling plays? You know, Ohio State had the number one offense in the country last year in terms of points and yards per game. So, yeah, I think it's an overreaction when people are saying Ryan Day needs to give up play calling because Ohio State had one bad game. Now, if you know, if those struggles continue, then then sure, maybe we maybe we can look at that. But you know, I I, I think that you know t- to have one bad game and all of a sudden say, oh man, I mean we we. We got to take play calling away from Ryan Day. I mean, that kind of reminds me of like after the Michigan game when people wanted to fire Mickey Marotti. Like, Ohio State literally had the best offense in the country last year. So, you know, let, let's let's hold off a little bit before we start talking about reinventing the wheel here. I mean, Ohio State's play calling is already a collaborative process. They have a lot of minds in that room, and so you would hope that Ryan Day is leaning on Kevin Wilson, is leaning on Justin Fry and Tony Offord and Brian Hartline for ideas. And I think that he is. But again, Ohio State did the best offense in the country last year. And so while I, I, you know, I think certainly it was not a perfect game plan for Ohio State. I mean, I think it's definitely fair to say that they waited too long to turn to the run game. They were a little bit past happy. I, I think those are fair critiques and I think that's something that you know Ryan Day and Ohio State's offensive staff should take and will take into consideration going ahead to future weeks but for me to sit here and say that the guy who led the number one offense in the country last year shouldn't be calling offensive plays there's just no way I'm going to say that I certainly agree with you Dan and and another another thing people you know like to look at coming into a new season of course is you know what what breakout freshman is going to make a make a big splash early on in a season and i don't think you know this this was never going to be the game where you know a freshman was going to come in and have a dominant performance if you look at the uh, the caliber of opponent ohio state was playing in the first game 
And, you know, the people that, are, that were waiting for Sonny Styles to have a, a huge debut for Ohio State as a true freshman in this game. We did see one member of the Styles family making some plays in that game, but it was not on the scarlet and gray side. And Dan, really freshman across the board from Ohio State, hardly saw any time. When you look at it here, only two freshmen played against Notre Dame. That's Caden Curry and Jaden Fielding, only, only on special teams. And one was a walk-on, Dan. And so, you know, I don't think either of us were necessarily projecting that, that you know, one of these freshmen in the 2022 class is going to come in and, and make a huge splash. But, you know, does that mean that, that one of those guys can't come on and make an impact later on in the season? Oh, certainly doesn't mean that because it's only week one and there's a long way to go. And I mean, we're already talking about multiple guys dealing with injuries. And so they may very well need a freshman to step up over the course of a season. And I think, again, you know, we talk about these next couple games we're going to see a lot more freshmen play the next couple of weeks if those games go the way they're supposed to go. And I think it's very important for Ohio State to get those freshman reps the next couple of weeks because I think just the reality of the depth chart right now is most of those freshmen aren't going to see a lot of playing time in big games this year. I think most of those freshmen are probably going to redshirt this year. So I think the next couple of weeks, it really is important for those guys to get their share of reps because I think if not... A year from now, we're going to be hearing a lot from the coaching staff about having a lot of inexperienced players, kind of like we heard a year ago. And so I think it's going to be important to find opportunities for those guys to get some reps over the course of a season. And certainly, I do think that we will see a couple of those guys earn roles by the end of the season, whether that be on special teams, whatever that might be. I'd, I'd be surprised if it's only two freshmen playing in games by the end of the year. But I think what that speaks to is the fact that this is a team that's got a lot of veterans. It's got, a, it's got good veteran depth pretty much across the board. And I think, I think it's a good thing that Ohio State didn't need any freshmen to really play significant roles against Notre Dame because I think that speaks to the fact that this team does have a lot more experience than last year. And, you know, they're not needing to turn to first-year players the way that they did last year. You know, I think a lot of people will want to probably see some of those freshmen come out and be immediate stars. But I think the fact that Ohio State isn't in a position to need that to happen, I think that's a great thing for Ohio State. When you talk about the current freshmen, I would not be surprised if the atmosphere at the game on Saturday you know, is going to inspire a few big-time recruits that were there for the game to eventually, you know, commit to the to the Buckeye program along with, you know, other factors as well, of course. But, Dan, I mean, that was that was really something for, you know, we, we've covered many games. You've covered a lot more games than I have. But in terms of the star power present at that game, I mean, the fact that you had LeBron James walking around there, Bronny James, of course, you know, visiting Ohio State as well, Joe Burrow in attendance there. I mean, a ton of super high-profile you know, famous NFL star Buckeyes from the past of Chase Young was in the building. I mean, Dan, I mean, Jason Tatum from the NBA was there and with a lot of people wondering why he was there. <laughs> he had a wearing a Ted Ginn Jr. Ted Ginn Jr. He could jersey <laughs> as well. Yeah, there, there was just a, a Andre Godala. I mean, the list goes on. I, I, I know I've seen some people making lists of, of all the celebrities that were there at the game. That was really a sight to behold for us. First of all, it made the sidelines absolutely packed from from our perspective, trying to actually see what was going on in the field. But, you know, I was so distracted almost trying to get clips of all these stars that were in attendance for the game. 
I think that's going to make a, a big impression on a lot of the recruits that were in attendance. And the fact that Ohio State won the game, obviously, as well, makes it a pretty successful weekend, I would say, on that front. Yeah, I mean, we talked about Ohio State kind of needing a big weekend this weekend to regain some momentum in recruiting. And I think that's exactly what happened. I mean, I mean, I was impressed, honestly, just by the 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 amount of star power that Ohio State attracted to bring back to this game with, you know, guy again, guys like LeBron James and Justin Fields. I mean, Joe Burrow returning to Ohio State, even though he finished his career at LSU. I mean, I think that is absolutely something that's going to make an impression on, on guys who are considering coming to Ohio State. And I think, you know, I think something Ohio State really benefited from this weekend is the change the NFL made a couple years ago where it, it canceled the fourth preseason game and made this a week off for the NFL because that allowed all those those former Buckeyes who are now playing in the NFL to be able to come back this weekend. Obviously, the NBA season hasn't started yet either. And so you're able to just have all these stars in the shoe. And I think that's probably all the more reason for, you know, Ryan Day to maybe push for some more marquee week one home openers in the future, because I think, you know, it really was an awesome atmosphere. And and I think, you know, they haven't had any commitments yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if they have some commitments coming soon, just riding the wave of momentum off, off of that game. Because I think, you know, to have that kind of atmosphere and then finish it off with a win, I think a lot of the teenagers who were there considering Ohio State for their football and basketball futures came away impressed. I should acknowledge also one of the funnier moments from Tuesday's press conference with Ryan Day was, you know, looking back at it now, does he like starting the season with one of these, you know, a top five non-conference opponent like this? And he, and he said, listen, on, on Friday night, if you would ask me, I would have said, it's a terrible idea. But looking back now with the, the success and how the event went and the atmosphere with with everyone, everything we just talked about, the recruiting side of things as well, he said, Listen, looking back on it now, it ended up being a great idea, but obviously a daunting task to start a season with that much of a high-pressure situation. Dan, this upcoming Saturday, though, it's not going to be quite as high-pressure a moment. There's not going to be as much star power on the sidelines unless you consider you know, guys like myself and Dan Hope to be stars. But Arkansas State is coming to town, Dan. There are a few interesting things about this team, I would say, upon you know, kind of doing the research on the Red Wolves Although, of course, Ohio State, as we mentioned, is going to come in as a 44-point favorite. Anything in particular that you are that piques your interest about this matchup, Dan, that, that our listeners might not know about? Well, like you said, there, there are, you know, a few interesting angles here. You know, Brian Sneed, who started his career at Ohio State, he'll be back playing running back for Arkansas State this weekend. James Blackman, the Arkansas State quarterback. He used to play at Florida State. Rob Harley, the defensive coordinator for Arkansas State, he's a former Ohio State player. Chick Harley's grandson as well. And so there are a few, you know, interesting kind of angles going into this game. I mean, I don't think it's going to be a competitive game. Now, I mean, Arkansas State, they did win 58 to free last week, but the caveat being that that was against Grambling State, an FCS team, a team that was coached by Hugh Jackson, which is a name that I'm, I'm sure makes some listeners and probably Cleveland Browns fan Griffin cringe a little bit when they hear that name. But I think for me, really, in, in terms of this game, it goes back to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago with, you know, none of the freshmen playing on offense or defense last week, you know, not much rotation this past week. I, I think for me, you know, I, I'm, you know, I heard some, you know, beat writers talking today about, oh, they, they kind of hope it's a blowout. So, you know, they don't really have to pay attention in the second half. I'm thinking I'm probably going to be paying more attention in the second half because I'm more interested to see 
how Kyle McCord and Devin Brown do. I'm more interested to see how these freshmen who have never played a game for Ohio State do. Like, that's what I'm more interested in in this game. Like, you know, granted, like, I think it would be a good thing for the offense to really come out in the first half and really be clicking and and look great just to kind of regain that momentum, you know, after a bit of a down week one. But, I mean, it's Arkansas State. Like, I I just don't think that no matter how good Ohio State looks in this game, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot. I mean, if Ohio State looks bad in this game, if they struggle to beat Arkansas State, then, yeah, there'll be something to read into it. But, you know, I think if Ohio State wins in blowout fashion, that's just kind of what's expected in this game. So, for me, I'm more interested to see, okay, if they can take care of business in the first half, do we get to see some of those young guys that we really haven't seen play much play in the second half? And can some of those guys maybe make an impression that puts them in position to where they could potentially play more in more competitive games as the season progresses? Yeah, Dan, Arkansas State has a pretty credentialed quarterback you know, under center there for the Red Wolves, James Blackman, a former multi-year Florida State starter. This is his sixth season of college football, I believe. He's six foot five, he stands, and I think he's like top 10 in Florida State history in passing touchdowns, like number 12 in passing yards for the Seminoles as well. I, I obviously already mentioned last year, the Red Wolves had the number 11 passing offense in the country. Like you mentioned, they had that big first game, but but last year, very bad season in Butch Jones's first year, two and 11 record, one of the worst, I think, defenses overall in the country, one of the worst rushing offenses in the country to kind of counterbalance the the, the good passing attack there. But I should, you know, last year going into the, the Tulsa game, not the same opponent per se, but if, if people remember that game, that was a, a, an all too close game for the Buckeyes for a, a long period of time in a home game against a non-conference opponent. I don't think this is the same Buckeye team that that was at that time. There's a lot more experience, a lot more confidence, and therefore I don't see the game going that way. And Dan, I think I've actually got Ohio State covering the 44-point spread this weekend just barely with a 56-10 to win for Ohio State. What say you? I'm going 59-14, barely with a cover. So that means it's going to be like, you know, 35 to zero or something. Cause we were, we were pretty far off last week. So we're, we're very, very similar score predictions for the second week in a row, but very much on the same wavelength here. We think Ohio state just barely gets that cover. I mean, if it was me, I wouldn't be betting on this game because I'm not somebody who ever really likes to touch a 44-point spread, but I'm going to say Ohio State just barely covers it. I mean, it's, it's so hard to predict a score like a game like this because you have to think there's going to be a lot of backups in there in the second half, and that can allow the game to be closer. But, I mean, I, I think the talent disparity in this one is pretty massive to where unless Ohio State's totally asleep going into this game, I think Ohio State should be able to really win this one in massive fashion. And the AP and coaches polls came out on Tuesday. Ohio State, despite beating the number five team in the country, actually dropped from number two to number three. But, you know, when you look at it, when you look at what Georgia defending champion did against number 11 Oregon this weekend, beating them by 46 points in a 49 to three game, it's kind of like, what do you do with Georgia at that point? It was such an impressive win. But again, you know, Ohio State potentially beat a, a higher caliber opponent. What do you make of Ohio State dropping in the polls? And do you think that they're kind of accurately ranked right now. Yeah, it's, you know, on one hand, it's hard for me to come to grips with a team being penalized for not beating a top five opponent convincingly enough because, I mean, they just beat a top five team and they dropped in the polls. Like, I had people asking me, I, I don't know the answer, but I had people asking, you know, when's the last time a, a team 
beat a top five opponent and dropped into polls. That can't happen very often. But at the same time, it's also pretty hard to argue against it because Georgia beat a ranked Oregon team 49 to three. I mean, just dismantled them on both sides of the ball. And so I think it's very easy to come away from week one of a season and say, you know, Georgia passed the eye test a little more than Ohio State. Georgia belongs at number two. And I mean, you could even make case Georgia belongs at number one ahead of Alabama. Alabama won 55 to nothing against a Utah State. But, you know, I, I, I think it's fair. I think it's fair for Ohio State to be free. I think really my big takeaway is I, I came into the season thinking that those free teams are clearly the free best teams in college football this year. And after week one, my opinion on that has not only not changed, but it's been strengthened. But I, I think those are pretty clearly the top three teams. You know, my Utah pick to round out the CFP is not looking great <laughs> after they lost to Florida in week one. They're going to pretty much have to run the table now to get into the CFP. So I'm not feeling great about that pick. But, you know, it's like if I'm trying to pick a fourth CFP team right now, like it's hard. Like Michigan did move up to four from the AP poll. I mean, I, I think that's probably... If I was a voter, I probably would have put Michigan four this week. But, I mean, they played Colorado State in week one. Like, Michigan hasn't been tested yet. So we really have no idea how good Michigan actually is. You know, I think you could still make a case for putting Clemson up there. You know, Clemson ultimately took care of business against Georgia Tech. Actually ended up up covering, but was not the most aesthetically pleasing game. They kind of pulled away at the end. And so... I'm certainly not sold right now on the, the idea of Clemson being a top four team, though I wouldn't dispute with them being there. And, and right now they're, they're ranked fifth in the AP poll. But I think that's my biggest takeaway coming out of week one is it really does feel like whatever order you want to rank them, Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State are in a class of their own. And you know, I know I know some people watch that first game for Ohio State and go, man, I don't know if this team's good enough to beat Alabama and Georgia. And my response to that is it's just one week. Like, let's, you know, let's see how the season plays out. Like, there's 11 more regular season games to go. Let's see how the season plays out. When we get to November and December, we can worry about whether Ohio State is good enough to beat Georgia and Alabama. It's, it's, it's way too early to be worried about that right now. Ohio State just beat a top five team. That's a, that's a huge step to start the season. And so I think it's, it's way too early to be worried about, man, is this team good enough to beat Georgia or Alabama? Because guess what? In 2014, Ohio State, the first week of the season, was not good enough to win the national championship. They became that by the end of the year. And so... I don't think that's anything to worry about right now. I just think there's a clear top three and then everyone else. And I'm going to have to see something I haven't seen yet from other teams for me to believe that anybody else is really going to be a serious contender for the national title this year. Yeah, Dan, I think some people thought Michigan might take, you know, a bit of a step back this season just with all the talent they lost, especially, you know, defensively with the stars on the edge for them last season. But you know, Ohio State and Michigan being three and four right now, you, you'd kind of like to see if, if those those rankings hold, you know, all season and th- those teams are in the top five at the end of the regular season. That's only going to heat things up for that huge rivalry game again. And yeah, and another thing around the country, of course, LSU losing that that great game almost had a, a huge comeback there against Florida State in New Orleans, end up 
with a, a blocked extra point, stopping them from sending it to overtime. So the Brian Kelly, Kelly era does not start off with a bang in Baton Rouge. Yeah, you mentioned Clemson. I mean, you know, when I had that game on in like the third quarter, it was like a, a four point game or something like that. And, and everyone on Twitter is kind of losing their mind saying, you know, Clemson's not good and and kind of just dunking on Clemson. That, I mean, that that performance and kind of the, the Clemson offense in general, despite the fact that they, you know, got it all together in the end, is why I didn't put Clemson in my four team CFP field because I just, you know, want to see a little bit more out of the Tigers before hopping back on kind of that bandwagon this year. But but yeah, Dan, anything else catch your eye around the country as, as far as the, you know, the first week of college football? Well, speaking of the college football playoffs, some big news that came out on Friday that the college football playoff will expand to 12 teams no later than 2026 and potentially as early as 2024. Ryan Day, he he said on Tuesday that you know, he's excited about it. You know, he thinks it's going to be good for college football. That's where I personally stand on it, too, that I, I think it is going to be good for college football. I know not everybody agrees with that, though. Where do you come down on it? I mean, I do. Part of me buys into the the notion that, like, you know, when you see some of these teams and you see a Cincinnati in the CFP and the game doesn't end up being all that competitive. And then you're wondering, you know, how is the, the 12th seed in that tournament really going to stack up in some of these games against the, 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 the power teams? But, you know, it does allow for more of those stories to happen more of more of the, these you know great upsets at the end of the season to, to happen and, and more teams to be involved to, for it to feel like more than a four team race every year in college football which is you know kind of a problem with the sport when you look at Alabama just being so dominant and then a handful of teams other than that it certainly takes pressure off of you know the teams at the top of that list there because now if you're in Ohio State or Alabama you know you can afford to lose a game and, and not think that your your entire season you know, has come to an end at that point. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll withhold judgment for now and kind of see how things go. But I don't know. I don't know if I have a strong feeling like that I absolutely love it or hate it. I just don't know how much more I would ever want to see it expand than 12 teams. You know what I mean? No, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a part of me that would have preferred either eight or 16 just as if a round number like I don't I don't know how I feel about the first round buy thing. Like, I don't know how I feel about the fact that five through eight seeds are going to get games on their own campus, but one through four aren't like that. I, I still think that's weird. So like, I personally think I would have been more in favor of either, you know, I think eight teams would have been a solid number to, to expand it and still keep it a little bit more exclusive. I wouldn't have been opposed to 16 teams and having an, you know, an even number of teams, everybody having to play the same amount of games to win, but you know, 12s for compromise uh, and to me, I look at it, I think 12 is better than four because I think, you know, there's two ways of looking at it. And I and I totally get the opposing view of, you know, this is, is going to make, you know, certain regular season games less meaningful. Like you think like Ohio State, Michigan last year, like last year, both those teams probably make it into the playoff. And so it, it wouldn't have had the same kind of implications that it ultimately did with, you know, that being the game that got Michigan into the playoff and left Ohio State out of it. And so I get that part of it in terms of the devaluing regular season. Like, I mean, I just talked about it. Like, there's three teams that are probably way better than everybody else. So, I mean, right now, uh, we would be very sharply penciling 
Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State into the playoff right now because I think we'd be looking at it and going, there's no way like these teams, any of these teams are going to lose enough games to not be in the top 12 at the end of the year. And so I think for the elite teams, it's true that the regular season games would not have as much implications. But I think the way I look at it as there's going to be so many more games that now do have playoff implications. Because when you only have four teams, you have so many teams that are eliminated from the playoff race in September, in October. And, you know, I know, I know, you know, it's, it's easy. People say, you know, I mean, the playoff created this problem and not everything should be judged on the measuring stick of a playoff. But like the reality is, I mean, especially with fan base like Ohio State, like the reality is the playoff is what people view as the measuring stick now. And so I think having more access to the playoff and having more teams in November that have a chance to make the playoff, I think that's going to make the season so much more exciting for so many more fan bases. I'm not even really looking at this as much from the Ohio State perspective as I am from just a broader perspective of college football. But I think the more teams you give a chance to make the playoff, the more exciting the regular season is going to be for more fans. And so, yeah, Ohio State, under this format, really should make the playoff pretty much every single year. So should Alabama. So should Georgia. But there's so many other teams now that are going to have a much more realistic chance of making the playoff than they've ever had in the past. And, and I just think, I think that's going to make college football m- m- more interesting for everybody. Will it ultimately change who wins the national championship? I don't know. But I also know, you know, from the NCAA tournament that, you know, people love a Cinderella story. And so, I mean, to me, you know, is a 12-5 upset going to change who wins the national championship? Probably not. But I still think it'll be fun to watch. Like, I, I just think having more games that matter late in the season is going to be good for college football. I think it's going to be fun to watch. And so I'm, I'm, I'm personally very much in favor of it. I understand the argument against it. But for me, I do think it will ultimately be better for college football in the long run. Dan, obviously there's been so much college football happenings going on, obviously with it being week one and everything, the, the playoff stuff as we just talked about. But Ohio State basketball, there's been some fairly significant news in the last couple of days there as well. On Sunday, Seth Towns, veteran forward, Harvard transfer, Columbus native, announced that he will not be playing for Ohio State this year. He said he'll be stepping away was what his, his actual you know language in the statement he put out because he suffered some more setbacks over the offseason. You'll remember Seth Towns missed two full seasons at Harvard dealing with knee injuries, transferred to Ohio State. You know, he, he played, I think, in 25 games two seasons ago, ends up having offseason back surgery before his fifth season, was supposed to come back in December of last year, ends up not playing in a single game. Then the last we heard from Chris Holman was that he was that Towns was supposed to be cleared by the start of September. The start of September comes we hear Ta- Towns has still not been cleared. And so now Towns is, is stepping away from the program and says he'll be you know mulling over what his future will be in general. I don't think this is a big shock, Dan. It's definitely unfortunate for a guy that's had to deal with so many issues. A former Ivy League player of the year at Harvard. So, you know, he had some, some very high highs in his basketball career, but this might be the end as far as that's concerned. However, you know, how much is that really going to impact Ohio State's 2022-2023 season? I tend to think, it may not end up having that much of an impact. A guy that didn't play at all last season, 
you know, with, with all the young talent that Ohio State has, I, I tend to think that this is may end up being somewhat of a non-factor. For the yeah, Bucs. I mean, I honestly, to me, I looked at Seth Towns. If he was going to be able to play this year and make an impact, I looked at that as a bonus because just based on the injury history he's had, I mean, really over the past four or five years dating back to his time at Harvard, you know, you just, you just didn't know if he was going to be able – you know, it's kind of like when we talk about Cam Babb, like a football team. Like, we all hope to see him make an impact, but it's kind of a bonus if it does happen because he's had such an injury history that you can't bank on it. And so I think in terms of, like, practically, in terms of how it impacts Ohio State for the upcoming season, that's the way I look at it. But, you know, it is unfortunate for him. You know, I think he's a guy that, you know, returning to Columbus, there was high hopes about what he could accomplish as a Buckeye. And, and he was very excited about that opportunity. And, and it just, he just was never healthy enough to be able to become the kind of player that he was. I mean, he was the Ivy League player of the year as a sophomore at Harvard. Like he, if he had been healthy, I think he's a guy who could have made a significant impact on Ohio State basketball for the couple of year, past couple of years. But unfortunately for him, he just was never healthy enough to really show what he could do. Dan, on Monday, the first commit in Ohio State's 2023 basketball recruiting class, decommitted from the Buckeyes, George Washington the third, one of the you know top combo guards, shooting guards in the country. He he will no longer. He's reopening his recruitment which of course I think with all the Bronny James stuff going on is, is you know has set the internet ablaze a little bit here with people wondering what could this mean for for Bronny James recruitment and things of that nature. You know, I think Washington was a guy I got to see him play a little bit when he first committed to Ohio State, he was ranked in the top 50 players in the country, maybe something like top 45 players in the country. He recently had kind of a downward, you know, a rankings fall a little bit there. He now ranks number 106 in the country and as this recruiting class for the Buckeyes is kind of heated up here with, with guys like Scotty Middleton, top 50 guys joining the fold. You know, I think Ohio State may have some more tricks up its sleeve in terms of being able to possibly land some higher ranked guys, some guys maybe in the top 50 there. Guys that that visited Ohio State alongside Washington this past weekend for the Notre Dame game, namely uh, Tyson Chapman, I think maybe the number 36 player in the country, a 6'4 guard out of Minnesota. He's a guy that visited. He already had Ohio State in his top five in July. And then also Bronny James, of course, as well, another top 50 guy at that shooting guard position. Now, you know, Bronny James just just on Tuesday tweeted out and put on social media his pictures, you know, wearing the the Ohio State uniform and everything like that from his visit. You know, that's sure to get people fired up and everything like that. I still don't know, you know, how much we really know about his recruitment and what the timetable for that is going to be. I think there's still a lot shrouded in mystery as far as that con- is concerned. I think Chapman, though, you, you have to think, Dan, with the the timeliness here of George Washington decommitting, you have to think that the Buckeyes may may have a likely chance at Chapman. He was already in the top five with the Buckeyes, and he just visited. Now we get the decommitment. It seems like things are lining up a little bit there for that to be a very likely possibility. Yeah, I mean, I just I would have a hard time believing that it's a coincidence that I mean, George Washington was on campus on Saturday. He was at the game on Saturday making an official visit. And then he decommits two days later. I would have a hard time believing that that I mean, maybe he you know, maybe his conversations with the coaching staff over the weekend just didn't just didn't go the way that he wanted them to. And, you know, that, you know, that was just, you know, being there and and maybe just something just didn't feel right while he was there. And maybe that's just why. He, he decommitted, but it seems to me, I mean, I've, I've seen it reported that 
Chapman could potentially make a commitment announcement as soon as this week. It, it feels to me like so, uh, something else is coming here. George Washington decommitting uh, probably means something's coming for Ohio State. Maybe two big things are coming. I mean, because, I mean, they, they, this could be a five-man class. It was never going to be a six-man class, though. So, you know, could this theoretically mean that they could end up replacing George Washington in the class with both Tyson Chapman and Bronny James? Probably too quick to jump to that conclusion, but I certainly don't think it's out of a question. Yeah, and, and for Washington specifically, though, it, it does kind of you know feel feel a little bit bad because it, it was going to be a good story there with the fact that his dad ended up getting a job. You know, what was it a you know at Dayton, the the women's basketball program? So he actually moved from Louisville to Dayton to to play in Ohio for his senior year. He ends up joining the you know, all Ohio red AU program playing alongside Devin Royal, who then committed to the Buckeyes. So it was going to be, you know, AU teammates there playing in Ohio state, a feel good story. But now that is quickly unraveled here, but I think for Ohio state fans, you should be excited about perhaps, you know, a, a, an upgrade in terms of, you know, overall skill or potential there at that, that two guard position in this class and what this class may end up doing if it ends up becoming, you know, a five man situation as we're talking about. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode. Hope you all enjoyed listening in. Ohio State football will be back on the field on Saturday at noon. They will play Arkansas State at Ohio Stadium. That game will be on the Big Ten Network. As always, Griffin and I and the rest of our 11 Warriors team will be at the shoe to cover all of that. So be sure to check out 11warriors.com for all of our coverage leading up to, during, and after that game. And we'll be back here next week, next Wednesday, to talk about everything we learned from game two.